Hello and welcome back to our Sabbath School from Home podcast. Today is the uh, first episode. We're, we're loosely tracking along with the Seventh-day Adventist lesson quarterly and they've just started a new quarter on the book of Isaiah. And uh, we've commented much as we enjoyed the, the some of the previous uh, quarters, some of the previous seasons, where we have drawn uh, from our own personal experiences and uh, tried new things. We, we were commenting that it was about time we, we came back to some more um, analytic uh, sort of study of specific passages. And uh, I've, I've been looking wistfully at the book of Psalms because I know we, we spent 13 episodes on that, but there were there's so many good Psalms that we missed. But when, when I found out that the next quarter was on Isaiah, it was, it was definitely the case that uh, we had to track along with the lesson because I think Isaiah is such a rich, rich book with so many themes that are relevant to, to us. So uh, my name's Cameron. And I'm recording from Launceston, Tasmania. I'm so glad that you can be here with us as, as we begin our discussion of the Book of Isaiah. Well, g'day, I'm Ken. Uh, I've just run in from outside in the rain in the middle of summer uh, to open the uh, electric gate that stopped working uh, while it was pouring on me. So glad to be here inside, out of the wet. And I'm Luke, and I'm recording in close proximity to a three-year-old. <laughs> So we'll see how we go tonight. Uh, glad you can be in close proximity to your three-year-old, Luke. It's wonderful. Me too. And I'm Lachlan. I'm recording from Kurumbong. It is very warm here. Lock, you had some reflections you were uh, telling me about earlier about the Book of Isaiah and, and some you know experiences you've had of the book and why you were glad that we would be studying this. Do you want to share those now before we, we read out some from the first chapter? Yeah, all right. They, it serves as a bit of a, an introduction to the book, I suppose. Uh, obviously, Isaiah is a, is a book that's well known. Um, and some passages from Isaiah are quoted in the Gospels, uh, in Jesus's ministry. Some passages from Isaiah are, of course, quoted in Handel's Messiah. And so there are many, many reasons why parts of Isaiah are well known. But I once, while living in Canberra many years ago, had decided that I would put on the audiobook version of the Bible that I had just received at that time for a drive from Canberra to Sydney. That's about three hours in the car. And I thought, where will I turn to? And chose Isaiah. So I started Isaiah on Northbourne Avenue, headed out of Canberra. And the book of Isaiah just relentlessly rolled at me through the speakers. And I found myself thinking a number of things. The first is that, like so many of the books of the Bible, experiencing it read to me or spoken to me was possibly a closer experience, a closer connection to the way that people throughout history and perhaps even some of the original audience experienced this book. So I felt that as a, as a profound experience, listening to it. And the other thing about it was that hearing it as an audiobook highlighted to me just how much I must scan back up half a page to make sure that I've been picking up the ideas correctly when I read off the, off the written page. Because as an audiobook, you, it just comes at you. You can't scan back up and reread a paragraph, um, especially while driving because I, I didn't have a fancy enough car media system to be able to just jump back 30 seconds and, and re-listen to it. 
So I found myself seeing Isaiah through a completely different window. I wasn't paying attention at all points to the nitty-gritty little fine details. I was experiencing the wash of key themes rolling over me during that drive. And I thoroughly enjoyed that. I have commented on it to a number of different people uh, since then as being a really powerful way to experience the book of Isaiah. Um, and one little tiny example that, that relates to these opening chapters we're going to think about today is um, the heavy repetition of the phrase, in that day. The opening chapters, I've got, um, I've got the first five chapters of Isaiah open uh, online in the English Standard Version. And I did a search for the phrase, in that day. Seven matches in the first five chapters. Um, and it continues as the book rolls on. And that's just one example of the different insight that I had. I, I think there is a certain richness um, in our Bible uh, study heritage. We tend to go in for the detailed interpretation of a particular word here or, or a key phrase there. Um, sometimes there's real value in stepping back and working out what is the big picture theme and I suspect that the opening chapters here of Isaiah, perhaps even the opening chapter, give us a reasonably robust introduction to what turns out to be a fairly central theme of the entire book of Isaiah. You know, look, it's interesting. I've, I've often had thoughts along these lines. There are some parts of the Bible that are, were more or less letters. For instance, in the New Testament, Paul's letters were designed to be read out. And a lot of the messages that are recorded in the prophets were messages that they were proclaiming to people, uh, which they wrote down. But the people listening didn't receive it in written form. They, they received it in, a, in one chunk. And, uh, but then there's other passages of the Bible, uh, which uh, I'm thinking more of, say, the Old Testament stories, uh, where the story is very cleverly and carefully crafted. And it's we tend to read, for instance... We tend to read uh, passages from Isaiah or Paul's letters verse at a time. And Old Testament stories like the story of uh, uh, Joseph or the story of Noah, uh, story at a time. And I, I think that there's a lot of merit in reversing those. I think that it, it would be very interesting to read out an extended passage of Isaiah as a sermon with no commentary. And uh, I think that some of the Old Testament stories that we treat at a story-wide level actually stand up to a huge amount more close scrutiny than we, than we tend to make of them. Isaiah chapter 1 is a little bit too long for us to read the whole thing, at least if we are to finish this recording in a timely uh, fashion. So we're going to read some excerpts. I'm going to start by reading the first uh, four verses as a bit of an introduction, and then we'll skip through to verse 10 and read verses 10 to 20. So I will read, I'm reading from the NIV, Isaiah chapter 1, the, the first four verses. The vision concerning Judah and Jerusalem that Isaiah, son of Amos, saw during the reigns of Isaiah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah. Hear me, you heavens. Listen, earth, for the Lord has spoken. I reared children and brought them up, but they have rebelled against me. The ox knows its master, the donkey knows its owner's manger, but Israel does not know, my people do not understand. Woe to the sinful nation, a people whose guilt is great, a brood of evildoers, children given to corruption. They have forsaken the Lord, they have spurned the Holy One of Israel, 
and turned their backs on him. Hear the word of the Lord, you rulers of Sodom. Listen to the law of our God, you people of Gomorrah. The multitude of your sacrifices, what are they to me, says the Lord? I have more than enough of burnt offerings of rams and the fat of fattened animals. I have no pleasure in the blood of bulls and lambs and goats. When you come to appear before me, who has asked this of you, this trampling of my courts? Stop bringing meaningless offerings. Your incense is detestable to me. New moons, Sabbaths and convocations. I cannot bear your evil assemblies. Your new moon feasts and your appointed festivals I hate with all my being. They have become a burden to me. I am weary of burying them. I am weary of burying them. When you spread out your hands in prayer, I hide my eyes from you. Even when you offer many prayers, I am not listening. Your hands are full of blood. Wash and make yourselves clean. Take your evil deeds out of my sight. Stop doing wrong. Learn to do right. Seek justice. Defend the oppressed. Take up the cause of the fatherless. Plead the case of the widow. Come now, let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall become like wool. If you are willing and obedient, you shall eat the good of the land. But if you refuse and rebel, you shall be eaten by the sword. For the mouth of the Lord has spoken. Now we may refer at times to some of the other verses in, in the opening chapter, but that's all that we'll read out. So that was verses 1 to 4 and then verses 10 to 20. What strikes you as we read those passages? What leaps off the page? What does this uh, tell you we ought to anticipate in the rest of the book as we progress through the book of Isaiah? Well, you're asking a, uh, for a broad theme there. One of the details that it seemed to me, well, it struck me, um, was hear the word of the Lord, you rulers of Sodom. Listen to the law of our God, you people of Gomorrah. Is, is Isaiah, uh, or is God saying through Isaiah, uh, you Israelites are Sodomites, uh, and equivalent of the inhabitants of Gomorrah? Um, is he addressing Israel as one of those evil nations that he destroyed? Yeah, well, the, I mean, it, there's a huge contrast of jumbled imagery here, isn't there? Because the the rulers of Sodom, they're like Gomorrah, they're um, offspring of evildoers, they're a sinful nation, back up in verse 4, and yet they're also uh, bringing vain offerings, they're bringing offerings, they're bringing incense, they're observing new moons and Sabbaths, they're calling convocations, they're having solemn assemblies, um, appointed feasts, so they are not completely you know, heathen pagans. That This is clearly the people of Israel, it seems to me, and they're participating in what they think is worship of the God Most High, and he's calling them out for, for somehow missing some central element. Yeah, they're doing a lot. All the offerings, the Sabbaths, new moons, assemblies. You know, it's interesting on the assemblies, one of the things that leapt off the page to me uh, as you read, Ken, your translation was very similar to mine, but your translation described their evil assemblies, mm. and and the NIV describes them as worthless assemblies. Now, 
evil and worthless ah. are not the same idea. Mm. And it, it struck me that there must be a fair amount of imprecision in in that passage in the original text. I know that uh, the, the ancient languages, all ancient languages, not just Hebrew or Aramaic or any of the other languages, had a much smaller vocabulary than English does. And whereas we have different words to be able to specify things in very particular detail. Uh, not all languages have that luxury, and, and some words can mean multiple things. But that uh, it struck me that uh, their assemblies were evil in one translation and worthless in the other. But your point still stands, Locke. The fact is they were assembling, and they, they were in the temple to worship God. Yeah, they're offering, they're offering burnt offerings. And it was not pleasing to the Lord. However, however you interpret or translate the word, it's unambiguously a bad. Sodom and it, um, Sodom and thing. Gomorrah turn up in uh, are frequently referred to, uh, and you would suppose from the original story that subsequent writers in the Bible would use would use the the stories of Sodom and Gomorrah to, to warn pagan heathen people because that you know Sodom and Gomorrah were full of you know uh, pagans and and who who were doing awful things and God punished them uh, or or I guess no I'm going to stick with punish I was going to say um, let them feel the consequence of their actions. But that's clearly not the way the story's written. It's written as a punishment. So uh, God punishes these these pagans. But the New Testament writers don't call on Sodom and Gomorrah. And Isaiah is not calling on Sodom and Gomorrah, as in, like alluding to it, making a reference to it, to warn pagan unbelievers. It's almost universally used to warn God's followers, which is really interesting. Jesus himself does it, as I recall. Jesus does it. I've got the passage in front of me. It will be worse for you than it than was Sodom. for Sodom and Gomorrah. Yeah. So this, he says when he sends out his disciples that if, if you go to a town, this is a town in Israel, and yeah. they don't listen to you, then leave the town, shake the dust off your feet. Truly, I tell you, it will be more bearable for Sodom and Gomorrah on the day of judgment than for that town. Not very bearable, it seems to me. <laughs> it's not very bearable. And then in Second Peter, uh, Peter says, you know, God didn't spare the angels when they sinned, but sent them to hell, putting them in chains of darkness to be held for judgment. If he didn't spare the ancient world when he brought the flood on its ungodly, ungodly people, if he if he condemned the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah by burning them to ashes, and rescued Lot, then this is a warning against those. And Peter is writing to people in the church uh, who uh, follow corrupt desires of the flesh and despise authority. So um, Sodom and Gomorrah are used as a warning against people in in the church. And in fact, um, Christ compares the people of Israel, some of them, very negatively, unfavorably with the people of Sodom and Gomorrah. So it seems to me that what... Isaiah is giving a warning about here is that there are certain types of apparently uh, religious uh, worship, liturgy, um, uh, services um, that uh, are every bit as abhorrent 
uh, to God as uh, outright um, rebellion and evil. Mm. Uh, indeed, that that is precisely what they are. Yes. Uh, I was having a discussion with you, Ken, about, um, about a certain suburb in Launceston that's renowned for being a pretty rough place to, to be. And uh, it tends to be a slightly lower socioeconomic. It tends to be a, a, a place where drugs are associated with, with drug dealers, or with, with uh, uh, violence, with the rough part of town. And the trouble is, it's all very well for, for us to sit in our comfortable houses with, uh, with a st- stable upbringing and comparatively very wealthy to condemn these people for their immorality. And society does it very gleefully. We really enjoy looking down on, on people uh, who... And, and suburbs and and you know I live on the wrong side of the Tamar I live on the East Tamar that's that's the wrong side of the Tamar and we enjoy identifying where the good and the bad suburbs are of course of course the more affluent suburbs are probably riddled with people who are evading tax um, cheating on their spouses with comparable levels of um, uh, with com- comparable rates to people anywhere else um, petty theft at work gossip i'm sure you know in other words it's it's really easy to focus on obvious moral failings in fact it's a bit comforting to do that uh the message in in isaiah is in that sense very threatening uh it's saying you it's saying i mean the Sodom and gomorrah that would be like i don't know uh that would be like uh i don't know the taliban uh if god punished the Taliban and then used it as a warning against Seventh-day Adventist practice in some area. And he compared us to them. We'd feel a bit upset, I think. And of course, in Christ's time, people were very upset. So it's interesting seeing that that's, mm. that Christ isn't the original. Like, it's not just a New Testament phenomenon. It happens in Isaiah that Sodom and Gomorrah are used as a, as a comparison. I mean, he's speaking about precisely some of those things that are most dear. To Seventh Day Adventists, uh, their Sabbaths, mm. uh, their meetings—you're going to church, um, your festivals and your appointed feasts, your um, uh, your Sabbath school, um, uh, you know, mission offerings go here and there, and um, uh, mm-hmm. and 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 every offering has—you know—we have our education offering here, and we have our whatever it else is there. Now, I'm, I'm not criticising those things uh, per se, but you you can see how you could easily come up with uh, a very uh, comparable list of things that good Seventh-day Adventists would regularly and uh, uh, proudly do uh, as and point to as indicating their commitment to God uh, that could, if done in a certain way or done in how, uh, be the same as the acts of terror. I was going to make a comment about about the the acts of worship. Ken, you you said that you know there was clearly it seemed there was something wrong with the type of worship that was being done because God was not satisfied with it. Um, but I I think from the context of the later verses that we read was 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 
more that it's not that there was anything wrong with the worship. It was it was not something they were doing wrong. It's something they weren't doing right. That that because they weren't doing it made the worship meaningless. That's a fantastic observation, mm. Luke. Uh, we focus so much on on what whether certain things are wrong and how wrong they are and in what contexts they might be wrong and what how should we treat someone within the church who's doing something wrong and in fact we we do just spend a huge amount of our energies thinking about things that are wrong i guess uh, a possible conclusion to draw from this challenge is that god would really appreciate it if we devoted at least some energy into thinking about what's right indeed he says precisely that um, in Isaiah 17, uh, Isaiah, end of Isaiah 16, stop doing wrong. Uh, Isaiah 17, learn to do right. And th- I think there's a really interesting um, uh, educational, transformational, behavioral change uh, lesson there. Um, it's all well and good to say what's wrong, don't do the wrong thing. But how do you not do the wrong thing? Well, the way that you don't do the wrong thing is you learn to do the right thing. Um, you have to replace the wrong thing with the right thing. Uh, you have to override the bad habit with the good uh, habit. And the interesting thing about that too is it is implicit in that instruction that it is possible to learn to do what is right. Uh, and I think often, uh, and I'm not suggesting for a moment uh, that that is done without grace, um, but so often the gospel message that we hear uh, is a message of passivity, uh, that grace is something uh, passive. And yes, it is the gift of God and it is God's work. Uh, but nonetheless, uh, we can learn to do what is right. Now, I'm not suggesting perfection or anything like that, but I'm suggesting it is perhaps wise to look for ways that we can uh, become better uh, and more skilled and doing the right thing. Ken, I know that one of the phrases you used um, in a previous episode months and months ago, but it stuck with me. Uh, grace is not opposed to work. Grace is opposed to earning. Mm. It's not opposed to effort. It's opposed to earning. Yeah. It's not my phrase, by the way. It's a right. phrase by the uh, philosopher and uh, Dallas Willard. And, of course, what Isaiah tells us here in the verses we read is that the, the, lear- the, the good which must be learnt, the doing good which is, we are called to learn to do, is not adding extra religious fervour to hollow rituals. It's, it's a real active engagement in the world and, and, uh, as the body of God. It's um, seeking justice, correcting oppression, bringing justice to the fatherless, and pleading the widow's cause. That's Isaiah 117. Um, I am interested to keep my ears open for that, for that theme to recur throughout this book as we study at this quarter. Like you referred to hollow traditions and, and how God doesn't want us to like, be more fervent in our religious activity if it's hollow. Uh, he wants us to, to be practical people for good forces for good in the world i think that what isaiah is saying and it's picked up in the new testament is the tradition by itself the same tradition 
can be meaningful or can be hollow. It's it's not actually a, a very uh, it's not correct to say it is a hollow tradition. The tradition is of Christmas that on one day a year you have lots of food and give each other presents. The the tradition that that same tradition could be hollow or not, but the actual tradition is the same. What makes it hollow is what's inside us. And and what Isaiah identifies here is what what determines whether our religious practices are constitute a hollow tradition and empty um, meaningless tradition or something filled with meaning is precisely um, how well it equips us and motivates us to improve the world. So uh, this is picked up in the book of James. James says, you know, in, in James chapter 2 verse 16, if you go up to someone and say who's hungry and you say, go in peace, keep warm and well fed, and you have every good intention, uh, but you do nothing to actually help them, what, what good is it? Faith, unaccompanied by action, is dead. So, so by all means, let us keep the religious traditions. But the thing that will give those traditions meaning, the thing that demonstrates they are achieving in our lives the sort of thing that God wants to achieve, is, is does it make us more active and more willing and more sensitive uh, to a world in need and, and, and more proactive in, in improving the world? The, the thing that gives that worship or those uh, religious activities substance and value that prevents them from being hollow and worthless is what happens outside of those religious activities, not the mere religious activities themselves. That's exactly what I wanted to say, Ken, but you said it much better. And... And Isaiah gives us a, a helpful list of things that we might want to consider as as the sorts of things that happen outside our religious, our formal religious gatherings and meetings and occasions. And it's a it's a fairly concise list, uh, but it's very far reaching also, uh, and and is a theme that's picked up a lot in the rest of the book. I'm sure we'll come back to this topic. Uh, where is it? It's uh, verse. It's a single 17. verse. Verse seventeen. Learn to do right. Seek justice. Defend the oppressed. Take up the cause of the fatherless. Plead the case of the widow. Hmm. Which reminds me immediately of Micah six eight. It, it does, doesn't it? It really sounds very similar. It says to to love justice, to do mercy, and to walk humbly Interesting with your God. Interesting to draw the parallel between those very things. And then the last thing that Micah says is walk humbly with your God. And the next thing that in verse 18, uh, God says is come now, let us reason together. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. And, and the verses surrounding Micah 6.8 as well are, are also a a criticism against worship that is unaccompanied by compassion and 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 selfless love and social justice. It, it's, I, I mean, it's almost it's almost yeah. word for word. It seems to me, Luke, that if, if God sent this message multiple times and in multiple ways, and if in the incarnation in his incarnate Christ he dwelt on this theme so heavily, and I'm thinking of the parable of the sheep and the goats. Uh, then, then it could be that maybe this message is a fairly important one. 
I think you might be onto something there, Cam. Well done, Cam. Once, once you, <laughs> once you start delving into to Christ's ministry, you see so much of these themes being played out. Uh, one parable that I thought of, and we might, if we're running out of time, we might. This might be our closing one. The parable of the the servants with the talents. Each of them given money, and and mm. uh, one of them doesn't risk it. He's not careless with it. He's very careful with it. He buries it in a spot where it will be safe, and uh, and but just doesn't use it. Uh, what if we may? Ah. What if we may say from this passage of Isaiah that that our formal religious traditions are that talent, and that God wants it to be used huh. and not buried. I really like that. I really like that analogy. <laughs> yeah, that's that's very rich. That's that's very rich, Cam. There's a lot. I'm going to be thinking about that all week. Um, you know, it's it's. I think highlights the error of some of the extremes of thinking. Uh, you know, being um, in the world but not of it. The the idea of uh, it too too easily becomes isolating religious practice to the point where it is sterile and useless like as if it's buried in the ground hmm. yeah no that's very well, good it's dead and not living not producing anything yeah. not doing anything anymore like that's, it's buried in the ground that's right <laughs> well buried in the ground what do you do you bury things in the ground when they yeah. are dead and then what do you become a whitewashed yeah. tomb can we might wrap this up uh, there's lots more that we can say there'll be many more opportunities to say it so if I may, this is a specific in in chapter one and chapter two. I just I was going to wait, but I looked it up and it's it's in chapter two. So we better cover it this week. I open by saying that sometimes there's great merit in looking for big themes rather than nitty gritty details. We've done a, a diligent effort at that, and I'm very excited to follow these themes over the next um, next couple of months. But where this finished in verse nineteen and twenty of Isaiah one really the imagery made my brain ring because it says, if you are willing and obedient, you shall eat of the good of the land, which sounds like an agricultural sort of image. And if you refuse and rebel, you shall be eaten by the sword. So there's an agricultural image of benefit or blessing being contrasted with punishment by the sword. But one of my favorite verses in Isaiah is Isaiah 2 verse 4. And they shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nations shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war any more. And I think that that's a really beautiful little connection of the same themes of agriculture versus weapons of war. A contrast between the military and mm. the agricultural, uh, between that which uh, is designed to bring death and that which feeds life. Yeah, what sounded like a bit of a of a sting in the tail. God in eighteen nineteen, God's been saying, "Come, let us reason. We're you know we're going to be able to fix this up." The the verse twenty, which says, "If you refuse and rebel, you shall be eaten by the sword." That sounds really really punitive by God, but He goes and basically upends the whole notion of punishment at the hand of the sword barely a chapter on so maybe that's something else we might look out for as we go through the book of isaiah 
Yeah. There's something else I want to point out about this part of this <laughs> section of verses, and I apologize in advance that this is happening. But there's a, it's a really interesting, this set from 16 to 20, I feel like this is a contained piece that is all interconnected. So 16 and 17 tells you what you should do. 18 says, your sins will be forgiven. Even even the worst sins will be forgiven. Under what circumstances will they be forgiven? Well, verse 19 tells you, if you're willing and obedient. Willing and obedient in doing what? Is verse 16 and 17, the immediate preceding verses. So this willingness and this obedience is about doing good and seeking justice and defending the oppressed and taking up the cause of the fatherless. That is what God is demanding obedience for. And that is what your sins are forgiven mm. in yeah. connection with, you know, which ties in perfectly, lines up one for one, exactly the same theology as the story yeah. of the sheep and the goats. Well, Locke, I was looking, when you read your verse, the thing that I noticed, you, you drew out the contrast between the, the military and the agricultural, which is played out again in chapter two. I, I just enjoyed the fact that in in both of those, uh, car- um, in verse 19 and verse 20, What's happening is yeah. eating. It's a lovely little poetic device. If you're obedient, you'll you'll eat lots of good things. But if if you re- resist and rebel, you will be yeah. eaten. <laughs> uh, so that's a, so. I've I've changed I've changed my mind. I said we started by saying that Isaiah benefits from a uh, and many Old Testament passages, many biblical passages, benefit from a broad approach where where you read it in large chunks and that some some things are lost when you when you you know isolate verses from each other and uh, looking at some of these verses I'm, I'm seeing that there is actually a huge amount to say so I think that what we need to do over the next 13 episodes is is deal with Isaiah at both the large macroscopic level and simultaneously extract all the juicy details from every verse so it sounds like our episodes from now on will have to be at least three hours long Maybe 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 three days long, if if, if we're going to get through all the good things that we, that can be said. Well, fortunately, uh, we'll have an eternity. Uh, maybe we can just start using a bit of that now. Yeah. <laughs> well, thanks for joining us on the start of this journey through Isaiah. We look forward to you being with us next week as we dig into the next couple of chapters of this book.